0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let us pray. Lord, you are the God who reigns forevermore. Your praise and glory shall not fail throughout all eternity. And now as your church, gathered in the name of Jesus, we ask that your word would not fail. We ask great things of a great God who has delivered to us a mighty word. Even now as we open your word, let Satan's captives be released. Even now as we open your word, bring the prodigals back home. Even now as we open your word, humble the self-righteous and the proud. Open the blind eyes, grant us true repentance and build up your church in the most holy faith of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen. We'll look today at Isaiah chapter 7. And before we read it, Isaiah chapter 7 is one of those Bible passages that has to be explained. If you just open up Isaiah 7 and read it, it is not simply understood. And so a couple of words of explanation before we read it think of uh, Judah, and it's, you know, Judah and Israel. David was the great king of the United Kingdom, and under his son Solomon, the kingdom was still united, but after Solomon's death, Israel broke apart. You had the 10 northern tribes seed and form their own state, and then you had Judah left in the south. Here in Isaiah 7, we're... uh, uh, what, a couple hundred years after that division in Judah and Israel are divided. And Judah, think of Judah like Ukraine. Ukraine is situated between two great powers, Russia on the one side and then the power of the European Union on the west side. And this is why Ukraine is so strategically important. Russia wants it as they expand to the west This is why Ukraine's membership or non-membership in NATO, which clusters in the countries to her west, is so important. And so think of Judah like Ukraine, and uh, would, would Ukraine side with one side or the other? Judah, will she side with one side or the other? Here in our text, it's Judah versus Syria and Israel or versus Assyria. We'll see in uh, chapter one, in verse one. We'll meet uh, Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and we'll meet Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and we will meet Pekah, who is all who is the king of Israel. In this region, the superpower isn't Russia or the European Union or China. It is Assyria, Assyria, and so then Judah has to decide: Are we going to be taken over by Assyria, or are we going to join? Israel and Syria to try to go against Assyria. What will Judah do? Just like Ukraine, she's pinched between two powers. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, what he does when he's pinched is he waffles. He just flips back and forth like a flapjack. And this is why Isaiah Comes to him and tries to change his way of thinking and his way of believing. Here in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is at a crossroads and he can see two options. The king of Judah, Ahaz, can see two options. Isaiah sees three. The king of Judah is at a crossroads and he can only see two options because he is a realist. He reads the news. He looks at the weather report. He looks at his stock returns. He's a realist. And he sees reality offering him two choices. His reality is diminished because his eyes are filled with fear rather than faith. And Ahaz, whose fearful eyes can only see two options, misses out on Isaiah's Faith-filled eyes which see another way. Ahaz sees Syria and Israel saying, join us against Assyria. Or he sees Assyria marching against him. Well, maybe he should go with them and not take this offer of allegiance. And his fears limit his vision to those two alternatives. His fears paralyze him and in a sense they cloud his vision. Isaiah has vision and Isaiah offers the king of Judah a better alternative. Isaiah says, don't join Israel and Syria against Assyria. Don't join Assyria against Israel and Syria. Isaiah says, join the Lord God. But Ahaz refuses to do this. Ahaz only sees two options because his eyes are more filled with fear than they are with faith. This is why he needs the prophet Isaiah because Isaiah sees more reality than Ahaz sees. With that understanding, let's read from Isaiah 7 uh, verse 1 down through verse 19. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit in the upper field on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, "'Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven.' But Ahaz said, "'I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test.' And he said, "'Hear then, O house of David, "'is it too little for you to weary men "'that you're going to weary my God also? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. "'Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, "'and you shall call his name Emmanuel.'" He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land these two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departing from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and in all the pastures. Contrast Isaiah with Ahaz. Ahaz, who is a realist, and is very in tune with what his fearful eyes can see, Ahaz waffles between his choices. And then even when God himself from heaven opens up and says, Ahaz, I'll help you if you ask me for a sign, Ahaz waffles about that. Ahaz, the realist, sees reality. But how much more reality does Isaiah, the prophet, see? Because Isaiah had a vision of the Lord. And Isaiah saw the Lord as first and best and overall. Isaiah saw the Lord as the God who can whistle and tell Egypt and Syria and Assyria and Babylon and Israel and Judah what to do. Such is God's sovereign majesty that he whistles and the superpowers of the earth roll over. Isaiah had a united, fearless heart because he feared God. Ahaz had a divided, fearful heart because he did not fear God. And isn't this one of the lessons that God's people must learn? When you don't fear God, you're gonna be miserable because you're gonna fear everything else. But when you fear the Lord... This delivers you, delivers you from other needless fears. Ahaz had a united heart. I'm I'm sorry, Isaiah had a united heart to fear the Lord and so fear nothing else. Ahaz had a divided heart because he didn't fear God, he feared everything. Church, which heart is yours? Woman of God, man of God, which heart is yours? Well, for you, it's not going to be the choice between an alliance with Israel and Syria or the threat of a Syrian invasion. At least I don't think it's going to. Don't know anything, right? Uh, the news, news events keep happening. We're like, I didn't have that on my bingo card. Like, you know, the, the Elon Musk and I don't know what's going on in the world. Who knows what's gonna happen? Maybe Assyria will be a threat to us, but I don't think so. So I'm saying it, it's not gonna be Assyria or Israel and Syria, but it's gonna be something. There will be something that, uh, verse 2, there will be something that causes your spiritual heart to shake like a tree in the wind. I don't know what it's going to be, but I know that it is going to be. Your crisis will come, and it won't be one. If you live long enough, you will have many Crises. That's the way life is. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Your crisis will come. It might be physical health. It might be uh, emotional health. It might be severe consequences because of your sin. It might be painful consequences because of someone else's sin impacting you. It may be severe your crisis may be severely difficult consequences because you did the right thing. I love church history. Church history is filled with women and men who face brutal crises simply because they did the right thing. Some of you right now, and I, I love you, some of you right now, you are facing severe stress and crisis simply because you are doing the work of the ministry faithfully. And that's why you're in a crisis. We all have that crisis that causes our heart to shake like the trees in the forest shake before the wind. And when we are in that crisis, don't we need to hear verse 4? God speaks through Isaiah and says, be still, be still, be quiet, do not fear do not let your heart be faint. Be still, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. And then he says, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria. Israel and Syria were so impressive, they had military might. And God says, don't let your heart shake against them. Uh, I like a a more vernacular translation of the end of verse 4 where it says, don't don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps. Essentially, God is saying through Isaiah, hey, don't freak out because of these two burnt-out cigarette butts. What are they to you? What are they to you? The first half of verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. It should simply be translated, "Be still, and do nothing." Here's the irony: In this crisis, Ahaz, Ahaz, whose fear makes him a realist and he's chasing down scientific solutions and he's chasing down political solutions, the irony is that in this exact crisis, the realist who figures out all of his options, hears from heaven, and God says, "Don't take any of them. Be still." God is saying through Isaiah, uh, not the, the word that we would like to hear if we were Ahaz. The word we would like to hear if we were Ahaz would be, hey, uh, don't just stand there. Figure things out and do something. But ironically, yet expectedly, if you know how God is, the word from heaven is just stand there and do Nothing. God speaks to his children, doesn't he? And God says, just stand there in my presence. Just stand there in my presence. And so to speak, speaking almost foolishly, do the nothing of worshiping me, trusting me, looking to me, meditating on my word, and trusting my character. Just do that. Just do that. Man, faith trusts God enough to stand still. And church, I just don't think you get that. I think you're way too busy. Faith trusts God enough to stand still. Faith won't move until God says move. Unbelief hustles. And unbelief not only hustles, but unbelief has a side hustle in case my hustle doesn't work. Unbelief has a side hustle and then another side hustle behind that just in case that one doesn't work out. That's what unbelief does. Fear on fear on fear. Faith waits. And faith looks to the Lord. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. And so I'm asking you, church, can you be still and do the, again, to speak foolishly, do the nothingness of worship, prayer, meditation, and contemplation of the character of God? Or do you have to hustle in the arm of your flesh? Then I think verse nine is the key verse, especially the end of it, the head of Ephraim, the head of Samaria, God's dismissing their power. And then God is saying to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz sees two options, but there was a third. Ahaz saw, I gotta hustle this way, or I gotta hustle that way. And Isaiah says, there's another option. Be firm and immovable in faith. Both of Ahaz's fears should have fizzled away in the fear of the Lord. But he feared political power and military might more than he feared the Lord. And so the end of verse 9 is really the hinge of the chapter, perhaps the hinge of both chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it's a play on words in the Hebrew Actually, the ESV captures the play on words because it translates it, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. We could translate it, hold on to God, or you will never hold out in the time of storm. Or we could translate it, if you do not stand in faith, you will never withstand the test. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So let us paraphrase what verse 9 means. If we could reverently uh, put words behind what God is saying here when he says if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. If you don't stand in faith, you'll never withstand anything. I think essentially what God is saying is this. Will you hear this, church? I think essentially what God is saying is if you treat me, as unreal, you will no longer understand reality. God speaks to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to Ahaz. The Holy Spirit of God through Isaiah speaks to this church on this morning in 2022 and says to us, God says to us, if you treat me as unreal, you will no longer understand reality. You will will no longer be properly connected to reality itself. Think of it like this. God says to you, hey, if you're going to treat me like one more thing on your list, your entire list is going to consume you and drive you insane. What do you think it means in Romans 1 where it says, though we knew God, Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Therefore, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Refusing to honor God as God is to treat God like one more thing on your list. I've got a big list of everything I gotta be concerned about and God's one more thing on that list. That is to refuse to honor God as God. And if you do that, your entire list will invert upon you and make you insane. God's saying, if you treat me as unreal and unimportant, you will no longer be able to discern what is important and you will no longer maintain a grasp on reality. And the ironic thing is, the realist in Isaiah 7 is Ahaz. He knows all about local economic production. He knows all about how many chariots that guy has and how many spears that guy has. He is the realist. But God says, if you treat me like one more factor in your equation of reality, every factor in your equation will confuse you until you're in utter darkness. Because this we know. There is only one rock. There is only one rock. There is only one secure foothold. And to entrust myself to the one rock which is God, the one rock which is Jesus Christ, the one foothold which is the Word of God, sealed by the very blood and resurrection of the Son of God, This is what faith is. And that's the issue that Ahaz was facing. A brief explanation of verses like 10 down through 14. God says, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz is like too pious to do what God asks him to do. And he's like, "Uh, no, I'm not gonna ask you for a sign. There is a sin of testing God. Exodus, 12, Exodus 17, I think it is, speaks of the sin of testing God. But uh, when God says, go ahead and ask me for a question, this is not the sin of testing God. But Ahaz's unbelief, I, I mean, I, I can't psychoanalyze him successfully, but I, I think I, I, Ahaz, Ahaz was doing something like, uh, well, if I keep listening to God and I really do what God asks me to do, then it's... It, it's going to make me. It's going to pinch me away from the, the options that I see, and I don't really want that. So he doesn't. Even, he doesn't even take God up on his offer. And then God gives the sign of the virgin and the son named Emmanuel. In immediate context, this is a guarantee that whatever the foolish king of Judah or Israel does, God will always provide the true king of Israel. And we know that in the fullness of biblical revelation, Matthew and chapter 1 applies this to the birth of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us but Ahaz can't see or believe any of that because Ahaz is walking by sight or by fear that's the same thing to walk by sight is to walk by fear by the fear of what you can see walking by sight is walking by fear because walking by sight is walking afraid of everything that you can see walking in the fear of the Lord is walking by faith And it it, it is the case that Ahaz can't even see reality beyond the two options that loom so large to him because he has no vision of God, the king of kings. Isaiah 6, the Lord whose throne rolls through the universe. So church, faith in God is always the issue. Will you have a heart that shakes like the trees in the forest shake? Or will you have a heart that is able to be still and firm in faith? Faith is always the issue. So let's take a minute and talk about faith because faith is another one of those church terms that everybody uses, but I don't think we all mean the same thing when we're talking about faith. We frequently find references, even in the news, they're they're kind of polling who's going to vote for what politician, they're like, people of faith vote for such and such politician. What does that even mean? People of faith. Or we see a bumper sticker, have faith. But the object of faith is not given. Perhaps it's the constraints of the bumper sticker, but I think it's more significant than that. What the world is saying is, well, if you have trust, if you have trust, then things will work out. What is faith? Faith is reliance upon the object of faith. What is Faith. Faith requires knowledge of the object of faith. And faith requires agreement with the object of faith. And faith requires embracing the hope and the promises of the object of faith. Faith is classically defined throughout uh, church history and throughout church historians as a you know, threefold definition of faith the mind understands, the will submits and the heart embraces knowledge of God the mind understands this persuades us to submit to God with our will and this also means that we embrace God with our affections and with our heart the classical terms brought to us down through the Latin notitia, ascensus, fiducia these, this threefold definition of faith the first has to do with content information and knowledge the second has to do with a uh, um a believing submission or a believing response to that content and knowledge. And the third is a personal commitment to the one who is the object of that knowledge. Faith always has an object, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. But to believe in Jesus, we must know about him. So therefore, that's why Romans 10 says, how they going have, have faith in him if they don't know who he is? We have to know Christian teaching. We have to know doctrine. We have to listen to preaching. We have to read the word. We have to meditate on it because we've got to know the God in whom we believe. But we also affirm, don't we, church, that knowing about God, it ain't going to get you there. Millions of people know something about Christianity, but they don't believe it's true. This is that second word, a census, like this, this personal entrustment to it, this, this submission to it. And finally, even knowing the facts about Jesus and even in a sense, believing that they're true isn't enough. Here we meet our demonic friends in James chapter 2. They know that God is one, and they probably even believe that that is true, reality. But they have no fiducia, they have no personal entrusting of themselves to God, to Jesus Christ. God says, I want you to know about me, but that's not enough. God says, I want you to trust in me and depend upon me and commit yourself to me. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so I hope you can see with me that God's saying, if you begin to treat me as unreal, your hold on reality will begin to slip away. Refusing to honor God as God is treating God as one more thing on your list. Your whole heart becomes darkened Faith, faith means that God is more real to me than the earthly things that I can see. I just don't don't think nearly enough church members think like that. Faith means God is more real to me than the earthly things that I can see. But oh beloved, faith also means that Jesus is more attractive than any of the earthly things that charm me most. Will you have that kind of faith? Those who don't see God, those who don't see God, like Ahaz, they might even be better than us at seeing the political ramifications of this and that and the other thing and the economic and the military and the medical ramifications of this and that and the other thing. But I'm like, well, have at it, have at it. I wanna see God. Remember, Ahaz is the realist. Isaiah is the man of faith. So church, can we apply this a little bit before we're done? If you would let me as a shepherd ask and answer the question, what are the threats to your faith? What are the threats to your faith? I suppose the biggest threat to faith is uh, all of the lies in the world. Because I believe, I hope you also believe, that every person is a person of faith. It's not whether but which. It's not whether he has faith and he doesn't. It's that he has faith in one thing and he has faith in something else. It's not whether but which. And believing this as my presupposition, then I I do think that the the biggest threat to our faith is the lie that presents itself as something else to place my hope, my faith, my love, my trust in. Lies have always been attractive and lies have always been the trouble. Genesis begins with a liar (laughs) slithering his way into the garden and hissing out half-truths, which are really <coughs> lies. And from Genesis to Revelation, like the, like the second or third to the last chapter of Revelation, when it, says, when it says the gate of heaven is shut and all these people are outside of heaven, one of the things that is highlighted is all those who lie and who give themselves to lies are shut out of the kingdom of heaven. The lies are always the biggest threat. And I recently heard somebody say, uh, Satan is the father of lies and he has always been the father of lies. But it's a lot worse now (laughs) because there are more lies and more targeted lies and they follow you around more aggressively than they ever did before. Garden of Eden, the only way you could hear a lie is if one other actual being, like, was standing next to you, telling you the lie. That was the case for many thousands of years. Then I suppose the, what, the invention of the printing press? Then you could, you you didn't have to be, like, face-to-face with somebody, you could read the lies that somebody else said, and, and like, like, from some other place. And then, what, the telegraph, the telephone... They don't have to be actually with them. Somebody else could call you and you could hear their lies. And And then just the whole thing just went exponential, of course, with internet, social media. We have fully funded corporations that spend billions of dollars collating data about you so that they can curate their lies to be exactly the lies that you would be predisposed to, to give into. I'm, n- I'm no great, uh, I'm not even a decent um, cultural commentator. It's not what I do. <laughs> but as pastor of this church, I do get to talk to dozens of people every week who are of very different ages, very different situations in life, and I get to talk to them about what they're really afraid of and, and what's the deepest matter of their heart. And so, as I assess that, my point of view is only my point of view, but I'm just saying, I don't think it's... Even if there are limitations to my point of view, I think my point of view is what it is because of the investment that I have in you. So, it, hopefully, it's not completely inaccurate. And I just think, church, in the last couple of years, we, we all know something big happened, but we don't know exactly what happened. We know COVID and the government response to COVID and rising heat in all matters political. And uh, I just think I've seen a couple of things. I've seen people who spent too much time online, and I've seen that double and triple and quadruple. To, their, to the detriment of their soul. And I've seen people who are uh, maybe take in a little bit too much news and information and I've seen that double and triple and quadruple to their detriment of their sanity. And I've seen people who are afraid um, and I've seen those fears uh, become more ingrown and less reachable less touchable and I'm concerned about that I don't know uh, you know I think we all get confused and bamboozled by science you know trust the science what does that even mean as if science is a unique kind of knowledge I don't think it's an exact over overlay but I think that, that Ahaz was a, was a realist when it came to what was happening on the ground uh, so Science or, or, or understandable data is not like a superior kind of knowledge that shows you what's right and wrong and what you should trust in. I think, like I said, I'm not some expert cultural commentator, but I do think it's the case that in a society like ours where we have no shared standard of right and wrong, science easily becomes kind of our default standard in God, as it were. But it's, science is only science. I can't tell you what's right and wrong. Just like trusting the experts can mislead you as often as it leads you, right? I think we get bamboozled by trusting the experts. The, look, I have an upcoming medical uh, appointment at Freighter. I consulted with the doctor and she, I think she knows what she's doing. I'm, ha- I'm happy to meet with her. She actually graduated and she's an expert in these things. I'm not not saying throw all that to the wind. But what percentage of experts in psychology actually believe that we were made by God for a relationship with God and all of our deepest problems are because that relationship has been rifted? How many experts in history and archaeology actually believe the exodus happened or the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened? And let us not get started on the experts in gender studies, okay? Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not saying information and data doesn't matter. It does. I want to go to a doctor who knows what she's doing. But I just, I don't know. If I could apply this in a very small way, let's say Let's say Ahaz and Isaiah got a scary medical diagnosis, which is something that's going to happen to you and me one of these days. Let's say Ahaz and Isaiah got, each got a scary medical diagnosis. Ahaz is the kind of guy who right away he's gonna Google 28 different sites about possible medical conditions and possible implications and chase down like every single thing, morning, noon, and night. And he's gonna be so busy on what he perceives to be reality that he will leave 45 seconds before he eats his pizza at night to say, dear God, thank you for this food. That's it. And then if he wakes up in the middle of the night, You ever get that? Wake up for the night watches? If an Ahaz with a difficult medical condition wakes up in the middle of the night, he will turn back to his phone, back to his data. Maybe there's one more thing, maybe there's one more experiment. Isaiah gets that medical diagnosis. What does he do? Well, hopefully he has a good doctor and he spends a little time going to the doctor. But I believe a man like Isaiah or a woman of God here who has the spirit of Isaiah would would spend substantive time in prayer. And then I would just ask you, does Ahaz or Isaiah have a better grasp on reality? Which one? Which one, church? Are you a church of faith or not? I'm not saying don't take in good medical counsel and advice, I'm all for that. But I am speaking as a man of God who believes that you will live forever no matter what you die of and it will be in heaven or it will be in hell. Are you believing God? Are you looking to the Lord? Do you throw God a bone at mealtime in a prayer? but all of the substance of your will and your affection and your information is all wrapped up in the data of this world. This is not to be a woman or a man of faith. Are you even seeing reality? I think we, I think we build, a, I think Ahaz builds a package of reality out of internet, science, experts, earthly fears, and then Ahaz maybe puts a bow of prayer on the top of the package. This isn't even close to the biblical definition of prayer. In this word of God from the Old Testament to the New, prayer is the package. Prayer not, not a thing that we pop on at the end as a religious gloss. Prayer is our one shot at reality and who we really are and where the deepest fears and the grandest hopes of of our eternity land and rest and reside. The package is who God is and what God has promised. And I don't mind, and I do put a bow on it of I'll double check that my doctor is not completely crazy. I'll do that. That's fine. But that's not where my hope resides. When it comes to life and when it comes to the next time your soul shakes like a tree in the forest, I don't want you to have the vision of Ahaz. I want you to have the vision of Isaiah. Ahaz had every fact on the ground accurately reported and he knew nothing about reality nothing we are we are people who believe that a super old geriatric Abraham and Sarah waited on God and had a baby We are people who believe that the foolish weakness of a Messiah crucified between thieves is the noblest, grandest salvation of the world. We need Isaiah and we need his vision because a doubting world needs a believing church and a fearful world needs a fearless church and a world that is wrapped up in their misconstrual of reality needs a church who sees and beholds God in his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you with the confidence that your praise and glory shall not fail unto all eternity. We bow before you confessing that our faith is weak, but we bow before you confessing that our faith, if it is in you, this is what matters. So we ask you to reveal yourself to us. We ask you to so doing transform us so that what we know not, you might teach us. And what we have not, you might give to us. And what we are not, you might make us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org.